I'm going to open us with prayer, and then we're going to jump in. Um, I gave all the adults these manuals. If any of the teenagers want one, you're welcome to them. Otherwise, you can just look on with your parents. Um, Thank you for making time on a Saturday morning to do this. Generally, the new members class here, David Sr. teaches it, and it's generally an eight-week class during Sunday school, and then as people miss them, they make them up. For the sake of time, we wanted to do an abbreviated version of this, so instead of an hour functionally on each section, eight sections, we're going to try to do a very abbreviated, about 15 minutes on each one, so that nobody's worn out, but that we cover everything somewhat well. In the manual that you have, Church Creek has used this for a long time, we have, um, you will notice in that index, there are eight sections, and those sections beyond church history really follow the five membership vow, vows that the PCA has its members take. And then there is a sixth vow that Church Creek has historically had people take that has to do with um, the scriptures, and that is carried over from when this church was part of the RPCES, Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, which was a denomination founded by Francis Schaeffer and merged into the PCA in 1983 in the Joining Emerging. And so um, we are going to follow those six membership questions. And I know that some of you, if not most of you, well, all of you have been members of a Presbyterian church, not all PCA. Um, And the question is often asked why, if we've been members of a PCA church or another Reformed Presbyterian church, do we have to go through membership at this church? And one of the reasons we do that is because every local church really is quite different, and the PCA is a big, big spectrum. And there's a lot of diversity in methodology, philosophy of worship, any number of things. Um, I planted a church in Savannah, Georgia that I pastored for 10 years, and um, there were four occasions where we granted people coming from PCA churches the exception not to come through new membership, and three of those four became major problems. So that's just to let some of you know that, um, and, and it very much became over the years, well, our old church did it this way, why can't we do this, why, and it was just incessant. And so that's one of the big reasons why we do this, just so everybody's clear about, you know, Church Creek's, not just our theological belief, but our methodology, our philosophy of worship, our philosophy of ministry. Those are kind of the areas where there's a whole lot of diversity in the PCA, in the EPC, in other sister denominations. So with all that as background, let me pray for us, and then we are going to look at this together. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you are a God who has been so gracious as to redeem a people and to gather your people together as a worshiping community, as your church. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We do pray this morning as we consider these aspects of local church membership that we would grow spiritually We ask that you would be honored and that we would be edified, and we do pray that you would guide our conversations in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, you'll notice there on the inside of page one, just behind the index or the table of contents, you'll notice that there are the six membership questions listed there. The first of those questions is the one I mentioned was left over from the RPCES carried over uh, in this church, and that, that regards your belief in the Bible as the Word of God and the only rule of faith and practice, the infallible and errant Word of God. So that's going to be foundational to everything else we talk about. That's why that's the lead question here. Um, and then you'll notice that the remaining questions, these are the five PCA vows, and the first two have to do with your relationship with the Lord. So, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner without hope, except in God's mercy? Um, and then, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God? That's a, that's a very personal thing. That's an individual relationship on the vertical between you and the Lord. And then the last three of the PCA vows, and there that would be number four, five, and six, they have to do with your relationship to others in the body of Christ. So are you going to live as becomes a follower of Christ um, in reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit? Are you going to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And will you submit to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? So what we're going to do today is move through very quickly all the things associated with those vows as if you decide to come for membership in this church, you will take those vows. So we want to do our part just to explain what it is we, we mean by those and what we believe. So with that in mind, you can skip over. You'll notice there's a section on biblical history, on church history. There is a crazy, weird chart on page four. This is the chart every Presbyterian gives out. It is... Um, it is the Presbyterian family connection, the family tree. We also call it the split peas because it's a bunch of Presbyterians that split and split and split, which really undermines Presbyterianism in, in principle. But it's, it's part of life in a fallen world. A lot of split peas everywhere. Um, just so you know, that's how we ended up where we are in the Presbyterian church in America. Um, also, our sister... Uh, denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, came out of the mainline churches before the PCA did. They came out in 1937. We came out in 1973. So um, those would be helpful just for you to look at. And if you have questions about those, I am happy to answer those. We've also given you a brief history of the Presbyterian Church in America. As I said, we're going to plow through stuff today so it's not burdensome or laborious, but we would very much like for you all to take the time to read through this. It's going to be a benefit to you. Um, it's, it's not perfunctory per se, but we do want you guys to take your own time to work through that. And then there is a history of Church Creek Presbyterian on page 7 that you'll see. I want us to jump in here at the outset on the first of those membership questions, the one related to Scripture. And as I've already noted, Scripture is the foundation of everything that we do. Um, whether it is our worship, whether it is our fellowship, whether it is outreach, whether it is counseling, whether it is 
the act of exercising discipline or shepherding. All of those things are to be informed by Scripture. Sometimes people make the mistake of limiting Scripture to the doctrine of salvation because that is the central message of Scripture. But, but God's Word has an authority that, that supersedes just salvation. Um, in one sense, we can say that the Scriptures are God's authoritative Word for all of life. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible speaks explicitly to everything, but it does mean that God's Word speaks authoritatively, implicitly on everything. So it's not going to tell me if I, you know, should watch a football game today, but it is going to tell me whatever I do, I'm to do it as under the Lord, and what is not faith is sin. And so it is going to speak implicitly to every area of life. And in that sense, it, it says more than just those things related to salvation. Um, how did we get our Bible? Uh, there are two forms of revelation that Scripture speaks about. General revelation is how God reveals himself in creation. So Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the earth shows forth his handiwork. Um, Romans 1, 19 and 20, that which is known about God is evident in all. For God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that all men are without excuse. So God reveals himself in creation clearly, but the revelation of God in creation only leaves men without excuse. So it has a very specific function. It doesn't lead people to a saving knowledge of Christ. It merely reveals that there is a God, that he's all-powerful, that he is all-wise, that he is good. It reveals his divine attributes. But men, Paul will say, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so we need we need another revelation from God, and that is what theologians are going to call special revelation. Now, there was special revelation before the fall. Remember, Adam had the general revelation of God in creation. He himself was part of that revelation. But then remember, God sets the one tree off limits, and so Adam needs God's word even before Adam needs salvation. Before men need salvation, they need special revelation. So, so man has always needed special revelation to interpret the world and himself. But after the fall, in a very, in a very specific sense, we need that special revelation to, to lead us to a knowledge of God through Christ. And the scriptures are specifically a revelation of Christ. Um, in the days of Moses, God began inscripturating his revelation through men. Before that, there was oral tradition from Adam through Noah to Moses, and then God begins to say, now write this down. And, and the rest of Scripture very clearly teaches um, God's uh, plenary, what we say is plenary inspiration in all the parts, plenary, it's in all its fullness, the written word of God is the inspired word of God. I made this point not long ago in a sermon that when we think about inspiration, we sometimes think, man, that artist really inspires me, or that musician really inspires me. 
And that's how we tend to use that word. But the word actually in the Greek is breathed out. It is expired. That God expires his revelation through human instruments that he carries along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the written word of God. And Jesus, who is the central revelation of God, the Redeemer, he is the living word. And so the goal of the written word is to lead us to the living word. And um, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. If you want to know who God is, you look at Christ. And there is God in the flesh. And so Jesus could say things like, uh, all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. John tells us that he was in the bosom of God and that he exegetes God. He makes God known to us. Um, Now, when we speak about the Bible in its essence, there are two things we want to consider. One, we've already said, it's inspired by God. Now, there are categories that have been used in a specific way in the past 150 years because of debates coming out of theological academies, especially German theological institutions that sort of undermined what Scripture actually is. And so some of those categories that we now use um, very clearly is that God's Word is infallible. It can't err. It is inspired. We've already talked about that. It's breathed out by God. And it is inerrant. Now, inerrancy and infallibility are not exactly the same because someone could deny that the Bible um, is free of errors. They could, they could conceivably say, well, I believe the Bible has human errors, but I don't believe it, it can err. It's an infallible rule that God's given us. But, but the reality is the infallibility of Scripture is dependent on the inerrancy of Scripture. If there are errors, human errors in the Bible, then the Bible is not infallible in, in what it, it does for us. So inerrancy is vital. And our denomination, very, very quickly, the PCA was really born out of this issue. Um, the old mainline denomination, but the Northern and Southern Church that are now the PCUSA, denied inerrancy. Deni- some of them affirmed infallibility, others denied infallibility. Once the scripture is, is undermined, there is no foundation. I mean, this is it. This is, this is the thing. Um, and so that's why we want to start with Scripture. I'm not going to go through everything on page 9 for you. I'll let you look up a lot of these verses about inspiration and um, proofs of inspiration. Uh, the self-attestation of Scripture. Notice that third heading, what does the Bible claim for itself? The Bible claims everything that I just uh, told you. And so we're getting all of that out of Scripture. Now, somebody could say, well, that's a circular argument. Well, yeah, it is. Everything's a circular argument. The question is, does it go through the authority of God or does it come through human cyclical reason? So everything's a circular argument everywhere. Um, But the fact that God has breathed Scripture out and then has affirmed internally what it is is absolutely vital to understanding the nature of Scripture. Um, How can you know that subjectively? Well, the Holy Spirit has to bear witness in our spirit, and he has to give illumination. 
Jesus will actually say in the Gospel of John, if anyone wants to know God's will, you could say if anyone wants to know if this is God's word, Jesus says he will know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or not because he wants to do God's will. So those who, those who have been, and we'll talk about this, chosen in Christ, those who long to do what is pleasing to God, know by the Spirit at work in them that, that God's word is God's word. I, I mean, I'm personally convinced that all men know that the scripture is God's word, which is why they hate it so much. But how do we come to a full persuasion of it? It's by that internal testimony and by the Spirit uh, working in us. Um, I'm not going to go through everything about the usefulness of the Bible. You can look at that on your own at the bottom of chapter 9. And I want to just briefly touch on the canon of Scripture at the bottom of page 10. Um, There are many mistaken notions that the canon, what books are considered God's word, there are many mistaken notions that the church, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, determine that. That is a very, 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 very truncated and fallacious argument. In fact, when the Apostle Paul writes to the new believers in the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says, he commends the, those believers, he said, because when you received the word that you heard from us, and he's speaking about himself as an apostle, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also works effectually in those who believe. That's a big verse. Because what Paul's saying is he was cognizant that God was using him to deliver God's word to the people and that when they received it, they didn't receive it as the word of Paul. They received it as the very word of God, which it is in truth, because it also works in them. So that's a big verse to talk about sort of the internal canonicity of Scripture. Scripture is canonical the moment God has, has it given to his church through prophets and apostles. The moment it was penned, it is the word of God. The moment it is received in the, in the apostolic age, it is received as part of the canon of scripture. So that when Paul writes Galatia, Galatians, it is the moment it is penned as very much part of the canon as Genesis was when Moses wrote it. Um, Now, Paul wrote other letters. I don't want to get into this in great detail, but Paul wrote two lost letters to the Corinthians, which are not part of the canon of Scripture because we don't have them. And that gets into a subject that we talk about called the preservation of Scripture. We believe that God not only inspired it, but that he preserves it. He keeps it inerrant in the original autographs, So when the prophets or apostles wrote scripture, Isaiah or Paul or Peter or Jude, that that God kept that perfectly, perfectly free from error in the original autographs. Now, we do not have the original autographs. No one has them. But what we do have is many thousands of manuscripts. And in in all of the variants that these manuscripts have, they, they generally come down to a, sim, a single vowel or consonant that was a scribal error. There is no major 
doctrinal difference in any manuscript. There's no manuscript that says baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then one that says baptizing them in the name of the Father. So one would be proof of the Trinitarian revelation. One could be conceivably said to deny that. There is nothing like that in all of the manuscripts in Hebrew and Greek that the almost overwhelming majority of those thousands of variants are a single letter that was a copyist error, which teaches us that, that God has preserved, even in all the manuscripts that we have, he has preserved his word. So that what we can say about our English Bibles is that they are 99.9% pure. Some people don't like that because they're like, well, what about that 1%? Well, what we're saying is the King James Version is not the inspired version. The ESV is not what God gave by inspiration. The New King James, the NAS, before that, the, the Geneva Bible. These, these are not directly, immediately inspired by God, but God has preserved his word, what theologians will say, essentially pure in the, in the English translations that we have, but he has preserved it in all the manuscripts um, and kept it free from error. So the point I would just make this morning is, and one of the most convincing points of this is that when you look at all the variants, um, there are zero doctrinal differences anywhere, which is absolutely amazing to think that God gave his revelation to Moses so many thousands of years ago, and then through Christ and the apostles 2,000 years ago, and there are no major doctrinal um, contradictions, no contradictions, seeming, seeming differences at times, but nothing, no, no clear and stark contradiction. I'm going to stop there. Um, that was a lot, but that was our first segment. Do you all have any questions or comments? And you can always ask me stuff afterwards too, so, but if you do have questions, feel free to raise them. Well, if not, let's go on to the second section on salvation. Now, this is arguably the most significant of the membership vows because in order for you to be a communing member of um, the Church of Christ and this local church in particular, then you have to have a credible profession of faith a believable profession of faith. Um, and, and to that end, we want to focus on this second membership question. Now, when we consider, and you can turn over to page 13, when we consider um, the gospel and our need for salvation, um, and, and the gospel just simply basically means the good news, it is the good news of what God has done to redeem a people by his grace. And yet, before we can acknowledge our need for the good news, we have to acknowledge the bad news. And, and that's vital. And so, notice the second section here on page 13. The gospel is a message about sin and man's character. Uh, the Bible's very clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, God made man upright, but he has sought out many schemes. 
1 John 1, 1.8 says, If anyone says that he has not sinned, he makes God a liar and the truth is not in him. If anyone confesses his sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. What does sin deserve? It deserves death. Um, we died spiritually in Adam. We die physically because of Adam's sin. And we deserve eternal death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Uh, It's not because God is mean. What sin deserves is death because God is life and we have sinned against the infinite and eternal source of life. And so because of that, what we do deserves death. That's why Paul says the wages of sin is death. And there is a judgment day. You'll notice there at the end of page 13, all men will stand before God to give an account of what we've done. Now, that's a terrifying thought because we've done a lot of stuff wrong. Me more than you. A lot of stuff wrong. And that's a, that's a frightening thought to think that everything's going to be laid bare on judgment day because we have consciences. And if our consciences are working the way they're supposed to, we have a sense of the guilt of our sin. We have a sense of the misery of our sin. And part of that is the shame of our sin. And so we live with this. A lot of people try to take the batteries out of the smoke detector so that it's not working properly. But believers acknowledge what God is convicting them of in their consciences and by his word and spirit, and ultimately showing us our need for Christ. Now, you all know the gospel. We preach the gospel here every Sunday. It is our commitment. Um, The gospel, very simply, is the good news about what God has done to redeem sinners freely by his grace through the death resurrection of Christ. Life does death resurrection of Christ. So, The gospel is not anything you do. I want to say that this morning. Even the faith and repentance that is the necessary response is not the gospel. The gospel is not what we do. The gospel is what Christ has done. There are a lot of people today, just like in the social gospel of the 20th century, who will tell you the gospel is you living out a life of social activism. No, it's not. We are not the good news. We are the bad news. (laughs) Christ is the good news. And so the gospel is entirely outside of us. It's going to do a work in us, but it is outside of us. As Martin Luther used to say, what we need is an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of us, a salvation outside of us. That's what God gives us in Christ. Now, you all know this, Christ is the last Adam. He is God and man. He substituted himself in our place. He had our sins imputed to him, credited to him. He was constituted a sinner on the cross, though he never sinned. He took the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. He then expired in death. He was buried Our sins were put away from God's sight, and they were left in the tomb. And on the third day, he rose victorious. He ascended to heaven, and he ever lives to represent and intercede for his people right now before the Father in glory. We have an advocate with the Father, 
So there is, and, and there are two parts to Christ's saving work. There is the finished work of Christ. Remember, he cries out on the cross, it is finished. He pays the debt. He atones for our sins. He washes away our sins with his blood. He propitiates, turns away the wrath of God. He conquers the evil one. So there is the finished work of Christ. And then there is the unfinished work of Christ. He ever lives to intercede. That's what he's doing right now. He is continuing his saving work on behalf of his people. And that's all part of the gospel. That's the good news of what God has done for us. He has taken our place. It is the great exchange. Now, we are called to respond to that message. It's not enough to say, that's awesome. I like that. That sounds good. It's not enough to say, yep, that's what the gospel is. Intellectually, I got it. But, but God calls us to respond to the gospel through repentance and faith. Now, very quickly, repentance is not just acknowledging that we're sinners. It's possible for someone to say, well, I'm a sinner, and I'm a really awful sinner, but not ever turn. So, and all of life, as Martin Luther said, is repentance. This is not just a one-time, did you? Because if it was one time, that would mean you could be sinless in this life. It's an ongoing process of turning from sin to God. Confessing our sins in light of what Christ has done. Forsaking those sins. Actively seeking to put them to death by the word and spirit. And turning to do what's pleasing to God. So that would be repentance. And then faith is really receiving and resting in Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Faith, Martin Luther says, saving faith in its essence, it's more than this, but in its essence, is holding out empty hands and saying to God, do what you have promised to do through your son. I take you at your word. It's not doing anything, it's receiving and resting in Christ. And so that would be the essence of saving faith. And you can look up those verses for yourself. Um, there are three promises that are affixed to um, everyone who has repented and believed the gospel. So if you have and are repenting and believing, if that is indicative of your life, then the three promises are you have eternal life because of what Christ done. You already have it. There is no condemnation, Romans 8, 1. There is now no condemnation now. That means that fear of judgment day has been, um, has been conquered by what Christ has done through his finished work. So that Paul could say there is now no condemnation. That means no matter what we've done, I had, I've had friends who are very committed Christians who when they were young had abortions and carry the weight of what they did. It could be any other sin that we've done. And yet the gospel works in such a way that Christ has stepped in and taken the place of his people so that no matter what we've done, there may be, there may be life consequences, but there is no condemnation if we're in Christ. That's, that's one of the biggest benefits of the gospel now, the promise. And that we've already passed from death to life. 
John 5, 24, Jesus says that they will not enter into judgment. Whoever believes in me has already passed from death to life. That's an awesome thought. That means that terror of death and what comes after it has been, the sting has been removed. Death has been conquered. Believers have already passed from death to life because we believe in the Son. So the question is, do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you acknowledge your sin before the Lord and your need for Christ and that there's no hope apart from him? That's, that's the essence of that second question on the nature of salvation. Um, now, the result of all of this is that we will um, live as new creatures, that we've been raised with Christ, we've been crucified with him, we've been raised up with him to newness of life, and so part of the fruit of the gospel, if we could say that, for those who have repented and believed in Christ, is that we now are new creatures, and as we heard recently, we are to live in light of what Christ has already made us. Um, and so that is the result or the fruit of the gospel. Now you'll notice on page 15, and I'm not going to go through all of these, but we would very much like you to read these for yourselves carefully. This is what theologians call the, the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. It's really how the benefits of Christ are applied to you in your life. So, not what Christ did, but how, how that is applied by the Spirit to you. And you'll notice that it moves from God calling you effectually, calling you to himself, regenerating you, giving you a new nature, bringing you to faith and repentance, justifying you, that's giving you a right standing because of Christ's righteousness, adopting you into his family, sanctifying you and making you more like Christ, enabling you to persevere, and ultimately glorifying you. That's also called the golden chain. In Romans chapter 8, that's where we find that. Those that he called, these he also justified. Those he justified, these he'll also glorify. It's the golden chain of how these things get applied to us in time. And we're not going to go through those in detail, but just wanted to draw your attention to those. Uh, If you would skip over page 16... And we're going to move on to question three here momentarily. But I want to give you guys some time to ask questions. We are moving fast. So questions or comments? Everybody know everything perfectly now? (laughs) I'm sorry if we're moving too quick, but I want to respect your day and time. Um, Please do take time to read through those two sections carefully. It, It would be a great devotional exercise to get your Bible out. Look up those references and just kind of meditate on why they are included there. And, and again, I am happy to receive any, uh, any questions from you all. Well, membership... Qu- are we... Uh, is that in here later on? No. Okay. So when we talk about the doctrine of election, because that is so much a part of the doctrine of salvation, um, we are looking at everything that Scripture teaches, verses like Ephesians 1-4, just as he, God the Father, chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. That would be one of the big proof texts for the doctrine of election. Election 
is a subset of predestination. They're not identical. Predestination is the big subset. That means that God has determined where every man is going to spend eternity, heaven or hell. But then within predestination, he has chosen for himself a people out of the determined fallen mass of humanity who he decided he would be gracious to and would draw to Christ in time. So Jesus speaks about this in John 6 when he says things like, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's a big, strong verse, not just for effectual calling. That's a big, strong verse for effectual calling, but it's a strong verse for for election. Who are those that the Father has given him? He says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. In the same section, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then in the same chapter in John 6, Jesus says, um, whoever believes on me, um, I'm sorry, I I glitched on this. He says, um, the one that comes to me, I will never cast out. So all that the Father gives me will come to me. They will be drawn effectually, all the elect, because nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. And all who come to me, I will never cast out. So from election to glorification, Jesus is saying these people are secure. Um, I'm going to say this cautiously. You do not have to believe the Reformed doctrine of election to be a member of this church. But we are going to teach it, and it is good for you to believe. Because it is true. And really, a lot of our assurance is rooted in this. I never would have come to God had he not chosen me in Christ. There's nothing in me that makes me inherently better than the heroin addict in the gutter who won't turn to Christ, or the rich, self-righteous guy who won't turn to Christ, or the religious leader who won't turn to Christ. Um, The only thing that makes me different is that God chose me and drew me. Uh, You really see this, don't you, in the Apostle Paul? Here's this great example, not just of effectual calling, but where is Paul going, Saul? Where is Saul going when he's converted? Yeah, he's going to drag Christians out of their houses and throw them in prison. He's, he's not at a crisis moment where he's like, you know, I'm going to pray the sinner's prayer now. He is actively going to persecute Christ's people. Jesus intercepts him on the road, blinds him, drops a new heart in him, and says, now I'm going to send you to preach the gospel. That's, that's a great picture. This is why Paul loved the doctrine of election so much, because he knew God had set him apart and had chosen him, and that all, really, if we want to understand big G grace, this is how I would put it, if we want to understand big G grace, we need to get the doctrine of election, because that makes God's grace entirely undeserved, entirely free, entirely dependent on God's good pleasure. And that, and that really, the result ought to be, we, we sing this hymn here called, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. And one of the lines I love so much, because I would weep often as a new convert, was, why was I made to hear his voice? and enter while there's room, while thousands make it a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Why was I made to hear his voice? Why, why would he have chosen me? There was nothing in me. It's just all evil by nature. But he decided 
I'm going to redeem these people. My son's going to die for them. They're going to be drawn to my son. He's going to keep them, renew them, build them up, and preserve them. So I don't know if that's helpful. It's a tough, listen, it's a, it's a t- tough subject. Right. Yeah. Well, you are you are not the first person to have that struggle. <laughs> there are legions of books written on this. Um, the best thing I can do is to say that while. While the Bible teaches very explicitly that God chose a people for himself apart from anything good in them or anything that they would do or had done, it also teaches that God appoints the means by which he is going to draw them to himself, and that includes evangelism, their need to repent and believe, their need for the local church. Now, our Westminster Confession will actually go so far as to say that ordinarily there is no salvation outside of the visible church. Well, somebody could say, but if you're elect, why do you need the church? Well, because God has appointed the church to be the nurturing um, mother of those that he has chosen in his son and drawn to him. And, and he's appointed the means, even preaching on Sunday, why do we do what we do every Sunday? Because God has promised to continue a work in his people through the exercise of the word and the sacraments But how you reconcile those things is not always easy because, you know, God could have conceivably just chosen people and that was it. But he also appointed all this, these means to the end. Yeah, God wants us to be fruitful. That, there's one side of it, too. He, he wants us to share in what he's doing in carrying the gospel out so that we're fruitful in seeing others come to know Christ. So that, I don't know if that's quite what you were saying, but that's definitely one side of it. Um, and again, I'm happy to talk more about all this, y'all. This is a big ocean of stuff. Um, let's turn over to the th- third section. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll all be Presbyterian in heaven, but not everybody is as sanctified here. No, I'm just lying. (laughs) No, no, no. Um, uh, And election is not, I will say this very quickly, election is not a distinctively Presbyterian doctrine. We tend to reduce it to that. Um, Augustine very clearly taught the doctrine of election. I wrote a Table Talk article this year I think in the February edition, on unconditional election. You can find that on Ligonier's site. But throughout church history, Augustine, Aquinas, all these theologians have acknowledged the doctrine of election. Um, And it is more or less a 
codified reform doctrine, and Presbyterians tend to be reformed. But um, there's a lot of faithful Calvinistic Baptists that believe this a lot. Um, there are Methodists that believe this. So there are people in, in many different denominations that uh, recognize the biblical teaching on it. Let's move on very quickly to question three, and then I'm going to give everybody a break. Question three, page 17. On sanctification, now this third question and this vow that you're going to take if you come for membership here is that you promise, and notice this language, in reliance on the grace of God, um, and the original question is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners and, oh, I'm sorry, do you resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ. So um, part of being a member in a church is saying, I am going to live like a Christian. Doesn't mean you're, you're not going to fail. That's why that vow is so, is so carefully crafted. Do you promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit? So in so much as God enables us, and, and gives us grace to rely on him. But it is a commitment to live in accord with our profession. Um, when, we are, when we are regenerated, um, when we are renewed, we are united to Christ, we believe in him, we are justified, we are adopted, and then we are sanctified. Notice the bottom of, chapter, of page 17, Shorter Catechism, question 35. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So what we are saying when we promise to live as becomes followers of Christ is that we acknowledge that God has renewed us, that we can do those things that are pleasing to him, and that we are committed to that, that we are committed to this process of, of putting sin to death in our life, in, in fleeing from temptation, in confessing sin when we fall in, in, in all those aspects of living the Christian life. I want to say this this morning— the Christian life cannot be lived in a vacuum. One of the reasons why this vow is a church membership vow, not just an individual thing, is because we cannot, we cannot live and will not live lives in which we are growing in grace if we are not living in the community of believers in a local church. I have never met someone who said to me, Pastor, I have not been in church for 10 years and I've never been godlier. Never met that person ever. In fact, every single person that has left the local church to, and said, but I'm still a Christian, has just veered toward apostasy. Every single one. Again, because God has appointed the means in the local church to help us. You know, I often think about this Sunday to Sunday is a really long time. At least it feels like it to me. 
And by the time Sunday comes around, I have not entirely forgotten what I preached the Sunday before, but certainly have not been meditating on it all week like I could have been, and am worn out by Wednesday, and probably passing out on the couch by 7.30 most nights, (laughs) and desperately need to be back with the saints on Sunday, even as the minister. And and if if I feel that experience is true in my life, I'm going to go out and venture to say that's true for every other believer. So this vow is set in the context of the local church, and yet it is a vow for you individually to pursue holy lives. You can read through all these passages about sanctification on, on page 18. They would be a great help to you. No, oh, yes. Yes. That's right. Yeah, when God justifies us, he vindicates us, accepts us as righteous. There's no transformation in us. It's a one-time legal standing. You trusted in Christ, you are forever justified. You are righteous before God because of Christ. Sanctification, we play a part. We work out what God is working in. Philippians, that's the language of Philippians. Work out what God is working in. So it is a work of God, sanctification. Justification is an act of God. It's a one-time act. Sanctification has an ongoing aspect. What now? Yes, both are based on the grace of God, the free grace of God. That's right. Um, how, how does sanctification occur? We've already kind of touched on this. Notice the bottom of page 18, right above that hand that says apply. Um, and, and I'm going to use the words means of grace. So God has appointed means by which we grow in grace. If we use them, we will grow. If we neglect them, we will not. And the big means of grace is God's word. Um, Just as I have never met a professing believer who said, I haven't been in a local church in, you know, 10 years, and I've, I've never been so close to God, I've never met a Christian who said, Pastor, I haven't read the Bible in 10 years, and I've never been so holy. Um, it, it, is a, it is an essential means of our sanctification. It's the most central means. Remember, Jesus prayed in that high priestly prayer in John 17 to his Father. He said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So there Jesus teaches us that the word is the central means of sanctification. How am I going to acknowledge sin and put it to death in my life? I have to have my mind renewed by God's word. And um, we are to read, hear, study, meditate upon, and memorize God's word so that we experience more of that sanctification. Um, I used to walk around as a new Christian with index cards that I had written out various verses on, hundreds of them. And that's how God's word gets in us, memorizing, meditating on it, turning it over, thinking about it, going back to it constantly, not just being able to sort of identify it, 
but being in it and really having it dwell in us. Um, sanctification is followed by service. You'll notice that at the bottom of uh, page 18. I would actually argue that service is a part of sanctification. As God is sanctifying me, I'm going to want to use the gifts that he's given me and the means that he's given me to be a blessing to others, to serve others, to care for their needs, to build them up. So that's part of our sanctification. If I'm not, if I'm not serving in the local church, if I'm not serving others, then I can't really say I'm being sanctified. Um, and what is, the greatest, what is the greatest hindrance to sanctification? It's a four-letter word that begins with S and ends with F. Self. Self is the biggest hindrance to sanctification. What gets in the way of my growth and grace is me. My interest, my desires, uh, my ambitions. And so as we're being sanctified, we become much more selfless and much more interested in caring for others. So just want to point that out. Um, You'll notice over on page 20, there is a list, uh, spiritual boot camp, and you can read through those things. That, that would be some of the primary ways that we um, pursue a sanctified life as Christians and, and in uh, the fellowship of a local church and its members. Um, If you would turn over, and you can see a whole lot there on page 21 and 22. Um, there, what I'll say here about these two pages is there are many sides to sanctification. There are the motives of sanctification, God's glory, our good. I would add our gratitude for what Christ has done. Gratitude is a big part of sanctification. It, when I am thankful for what Christ has done, I want to live for Christ. But the glory of God is the big motive. Um, it's good for us. You know, if a man doesn't cheat on his wife and he is faithful to her, that is good for him. Um, if you don't put other gods before God, that is good for you. If you honor the Lord's day, that is good for you. If you don't steal, that is good for you. So holiness is good for us. That's a motivation as to why we should pursue it. And then you'll notice those other sides, the means of sanctification um, and the marks of sanctification. Yes. Yeah, daily devotions is a, is a very much essential part of our Christian lives and pursuit of sanctification. I want to give you all an opportunity if you have questions, and then we could take a 10-minute break. And if you all want to get more coffee or donuts, you could, and then we'll come back. I know we're flying through this. All right, I'm going to give you all a break. Let's reconvene. At 10.10, 10, if that's right, nine minutes. <laughs>